So let's sit quietly together for about 10 minutes and then I'll talk about the theme for, for this evening. So just sit in a way that's comfortable if you're already in a posture for a talk. Just sit, sit comfortably as you are. No need to change anything. As long as you're comfortable, relaxed, alert. You might bring your awareness to your breath. And as you breathe in, just bring awareness to just how you're feeling right now. What's, what's present, what's predominant in your awareness. Whatever is present, can it be met with with kindness and friendliness, with a wish for your well-being? If it's helpful, you can bring a smile to your face. You could send a wish to yourself, may I be filled with loving kindness, held in loving kindness. You could bring your awareness to any area of yourself or your, your being or your body that might, might feel tight or contracted or fearful or anxious or in some way in difficulty. Just meet what's here with with a kind heart, with the wishes for your well-being. You might breathe into that area, let your breath consciously move, if you can, into that area, holding whatever you're experiencing with kindness. You put a hand on your heart or your belly. You could send a message, I care about this suffering. You could just think about your deepest wish for yourself, your most sincere wish for yourself and send that wish to yourself. May I live with ease. May I be truly happy. May I love and be loved. May I find true freedom of the heart.
inviting any area of contraction or tension to soften. You might imagine energy moving into that area, just allowing it, softening it up. Send kindness to yourself. Just allow what's here to come and go. One of our challenges is that we come to any moment with a lot of baggage from the past. We meet some experience and it is familiar, looks like something that we've experienced before. So the mind says, oh, this is this again. So if it was something fearful, then we tend to be afraid. If it was something that made us angry, we tend to get ready, get fired up to be angry. If it's something that caused sadness or worry, then we armor ourselves in the same way. Going to make start feeling sad or getting worried. When we bring the past into the present and define the present moment by the past, then we tend to perpetuate the past, past experiences, past behaviors, and we can continue the cycle of suffering. Now, obviously, we need to learn from the past and take it in any helpful information from what we've seen. But the tendency of our minds is to do more than this. It's to kind of hook onto it and see it as the same. So in particularly in the Zen tradition and more broadly, there's the concept of a concept of the beginner's mind. And the invitation is to meet each moment as though you've never experienced this moment before. 
which of course is true, we never have experienced this moment before, that we experience it fresh, new, with an open heart and an open mind. So it can be a powerful practice to, to practice cultivating an open, a, a don't know mind, a, a beginner's mind, a mind that's free of the baggage of the past. A saying, Zen saying, in the big, in the beginner's mind, there are many possibilities. In the experts, there are few. If we think we already know how this moment is going to be, we're going to respond as though we've res- in the way we've responded in the past. But if we're if we cultivate a beginner's mind, every moment is a new and fresh moment. It has infinite possibilities. It's not defined by what went before, although everything is affected by the causes and conditions that gave rise to it. So cultivating this quality of a beginner's mind openness of mind. In the words of David White, poet, enough. These few words are enough. If not these words, this breath. If not this breath, this sitting here, this opening to the life we have refused again and again until now. Until now. I want to share a few reflections this evening on cultivating an open heart and opening our heart to the world, to the suffering of the world. We've talked today about the practices of these four Brahma Viharas, these four divine abodes of loving kindness, compassion, sympathetic joy, and equanimity. Somebody asked a question what's the distinction between loving kindness and compassion? 
And I recalled that I had that question on a course that I did, uh, um, shared a few weeks ago on Insight Timer. Question there was, is a self-compassion meditation the same as a loving-kindness meditation? So what I said was you can think of loving-kindness as the heart quality of intending well-being, happiness, safety, peace towards others. Friends, loved ones, neutral people, difficult people, all other beings, including oneself. When that heart quality of well-wishing confronts suffering, our own or others, it manifests as compassion. So we can see the compassion as the expression of loving-kindness when it meets suffering, just as sympathetic joy is the expression of loving-kindness when it meets the happiness of, of another. So you can see compassion as a particular expression of loving-kindness that manifests when an open, caring heart meets suffering, our own or others. And self-compassion is simply that caring kindness and wish to alleviate suffering directed towards ourselves. So when we cultivate an open heart, which is essential for living fully, joyfully, compassionately in the world, there are practices that we can develop and cultivate, and we've been exploring some of these and talk some more about them. But the place where we can really begin in cultivating an open heart is with the obstacles to an open heart. You know, what gets in the way of our hearts being open? You know, I think we can see that if we weren't caught up in, you know, painful emotions and mind states, it would be very natural for us to express compassion, kindness, joy towards others, towards ourselves. There wouldn't be any kind of significant barriers. But when anger or fear or greed, hatred, any of these mind states or emotions arise, then really they close us down. And I've talked some about that today. They close us down. And we, we really don't have access to, to an open heart. We don't have access to compassion. You know, we tend to see there's, when we shut down, we really create a sense of there's a, there's a me and there's a you or another. And that separation. And there's a, you know, a, a world of difference between self and other. So we have to begin really with, to, by working with fear, with anger, with shame, with grief, with craving, where we do create a solid sense of self, who I am based on, based on solidifying this sense of um, you know, this, what, what we're identifying with, identifying with the fear or identifying with the worry or the sadness or the grief. And the practice of mindfulness provides the tool, tools for, for opening to, those, to that suffering 
we're experiencing suffering. And mindfulness really shines the light of awareness on that suffering. And what it helps us to do is to ultimately see that that suffering comes from something that isn't actually real. You know, it comes from solidifying something that can't ultimately be solidified. It comes from identifying. For example, you know, if we have a strong craving and we really get caught up in it, we're sharing today, it becomes like as though we're in a trance. We're in a kind of dream and we can't see anything but what's in the dream. We get caught up in that and, and we're suffering. What mindfulness does is it allows us to kind of puncture the balloon of that illusion, that illusion, that fear that we solidify around. You know. And I don't mean the fear that we, or the anger that we could that we can feel as a real, real information that gets us to respond to a dangerous situation, for example, or a threatening situation. That's, it's wise for those emotions to arise. They're helpful information. But when we solidify them, when we hold on to them, when we, what we do is we tend to think this could be pain or this suffering or this fear. It's going to last forever. Nothing's going to change. That's the illusion. Has anyone experienced that? That feeling that when we're caught up in something, it's a permanent state. It's not going to change. This isn't going to end. And that really, we know is an illusion, but when we're in that state, that really feels like the way it is. We're being, in a way, it's almost like we've, we've been captured by, you know, a part of our consciousness has kind of grabbed hold of the reins, as it were, or the steering wheel, and is driving us towards where, you know, where that part of us feels we need to go to, to really take care of things. And it's often very deeply either fear-based or craving-based, you know, wanting-based, where we feel we have to get this. We've got to get this, you know. We can think of an addict or an alcoholic. Got to have it, got to have it. Or with a person, you know, with infatuation or something we can... Got to have it, got to have it. Or got to get rid of it if it's a fear. Or got to get rid of a person or situation. So when we get caught up in those, um, those states, as I say, they, you know, they, they, they take hold of us. You know, they become a kind of trance that we get caught up in. So without awareness, we're going to keep playing out those patterns over and over. We create the habit of going there and going back there and going back there. And we'll get triggered more and more to go back into those fears or those worries or that, those cravings because that's the training that we're, we're giving to our minds. We're going back there. We're giving authority to these mind states or these thoughts or these beliefs. And we're believing them. I think of it as like... Um, the story of a, a, a rider on a horse is galloping along at top speed, you know, galloping. Along. Somebody shouts out to the rider, where are you going? And the rider says, don't ask me, ask the horse. And I, I love that story. 
I love that story because it really speaks to me of like, you know, that is what's going, what I feel it myself, you know, when, when, when the horse takes control, you know, it goes where it wants to go. It doesn't go where, where I want it to go, you know. And so, um, so mindfulness helps us kind of the rider to come get back into control. That When I say the rider, I don't mean a kind of a solid self. I mean that part of our awareness, that not even part of our awareness, that deep awareness that really knows what is good for us, what is healthy, what will lead to well-being. I think all of us know there is that kind of that, there is that wisdom within us. If we can clear away the the kind of debris, you know, that's all around, that gets in the way, the clutter, we can get to that and say, oh yes, this is, this is what I need to do. It's a wonderful poem. Again, I've been sharing a number of Mary Oliver's poems, but it's a, um, um, her poem, The Journey, where she says, one day you finally knew what you had to do and began, though the voices kept shouting their bad advice, though the whole house began to tremble and you felt the old tug at your ankles. Mend my life, each voice cried, but you didn't stop. You knew what you had to do and began, though the wind pried with its stiff fingers at the very foundations, though their melancholy was terrible. It was already late enough and a wild night, and the road full of fallen branches and stones. But little by little, as you left their voices behind, the stars began to shine through the sheets of clouds, and there was a new voice that you recognized as your own. That there was a new voice that you recognized as your own that helped you final lines of uh, Mary Oliver's a new voice that you recognized as your own that kept you company as you strode deeper and deeper into the world determined to do the only thing you could do determined to save the only life you could save that sense of knowing what's what's needed what what what's most important is is that awareness that that we touch into, that mindfulness helps us to come back to, to, um, to know what leads to happiness, to what leads to freedom, what leads to well-being. And so, um, so when we, so when we are caught up in the trance, the kind of that dream state, we can, we can bring awareness to it. Oh yes, there it is. There's the worry, there's the worried thought, there's the anxious thought, there's the fearful thought, or there's the planning thought, or there's the distraction, you know, being caught up in, in, in some story or another. And we can see that, and we can burst that bubble, come back, okay, this moment, this moment without judgment. So, so mindfulness helps us to um, to open to everything that's arising and see that ultimately it's not solid. There's not, it's not permanent. If, if we can open to the fears, that energy in our body, the thoughts in our mind, and just watch them come, watch them go, 
meet them with kindness, let them come and go, then we see that there isn't, you know, a solid, it, it's not a solid thing, you know. And the, the sense of a, a, a separate self that's fearful isn't solid either. You know, it's simply we're identified with a particular mind state or a particular emotion at a given time. So mindfulness helps us to kind of shine the spotlight on our experience, to let go, to see that everything is changing. And that if, we've, if we were to experience this pain or this difficult emotion as, as impermanent, as ch constantly changing, then we would be less, less suffer at the hands of that, of that pain or that discomfort. So we get, what mindfulness does is it helps us to, to see, to gain insight into the impermanence of everything, all conditioned things. You know, they come and they go. And if we don't get into a struggle with them, if we don't hold on tightly to them or push them away or escape in one way or another, then there's no suffering. Everything can come and go. And we can be really in a different relationship with our life. You know, rather than being in a struggle, as we are so much of the time, kind of we're wanting to make things the way we want them, or we want to get rid of certain feelings because they don't feel very good. We can move from those kind of states to... Um, to being in, in a much more fluid relationship to our life. You know, it's just, you know, the, the phrase I like is dancing with life. You know, being, seeing it as a dance. So seeing when experiences come, if we meet them, you know, and we don't, you know, get into a conflict with them or try and wrestle them to, to the ground, then we can interact with them, we can dance with them. It's a whole different relationship. And this is what mindfulness helps us to do, to see the impermanence of, of, of all phenomena, to see that, you know, the, the, the sense of a solid self that's caught up in suffering, if we can come into that fluid relationship, we see the self itself, the self itself is, is, is a construction, really a construction of the mind. It's not, it's not, there's not, there's not a solid eye. There's just these changing conditions and changing phenomena. And we can see that nothing, none of it can be held on to. You know, all the beautiful things that we want to hold on to don't last. And all of the painful things that we want to get rid of, they don't last either. So there's not, we can't, we can't hold on to anything. And if we can come into that recognition that nothing can be held on to, it's all changing, there's not a solid self to whom it's all happening, then, then we come to a great freedom in our lives. You know, life becomes less of a struggle and more of a dance. We can see, doesn't mean that thoughts don't arise or emotions don't arise. Naturally, they do. But we, do, we meet them in a different way. Oh, this is here now. Let it come, let it go. So this is really where we begin in working with or in cultivating an open heart. We begin with working with the obstacles to an open heart. And mindfulness is, is, is really a, 
a kind of a penetrating way of um, of dissolving the illusions, the illusions of a separate self, the dis- the illusions of of permanence, the, the the belief that we can hold on to anything, that mindfulness helps us to clear away the obstacles to an open heart. So even when the obstacles are there though, we can cultivate, we can train the heart and mind to, we can train the heart particularly to, to open. So the practices we've been doing um, doing since we began are, are ways of doing that, are ways of, of, of opening the heart. I want to look a little bit at how we cultivate an open heart and we bring it into the world and get engaging with the suffering of the world. As I've said in, in the times we're living in, it's very easy to, and natural in a way to get caught up in clinging. I say natural, I mean it's very habitual way of responding. There's a lot of fear and anger and judgment can come up, even despair. When we see what's going on all around us, what's being done in our name, we see the treatment of vulnerable populations, you know, I've spoken about immigrant families d- divided and parents deported, attacks on religious minorities, inaction on gun violence, inaction on climate change, continued kind of racial divisions and separation. We can feel despair and pessimism. Sometimes we even feel powerless. And I've experienced it with friends on social media who kind of got many going into a sense of things are really, you know, really becoming difficult and painful. And, you know, it's true. And there's, but there's a, a kind of, there can be a kind of a, you know, a very fearful response of getting caught up in those states, which can really immobilize us. You know, when we close down in fear, as I've been saying, you know, we close down um, in anger or in other ways, then we're not available. We're not available to, to, for others and for our world. And so I want to reflect a little on that um, this evening. When, when we feel under threat, it's natural to go into a fight-or-flight response. We want to defend ourselves. We create separation. We fight, we shut down. And we easily go into an us and them mode and can get caught up in a cycle of separation and suffering. And what the heart practices do is they help us open to the larger truth of our interconnectedness. The truth that we're not separate from each other, even when we might feel separate. So right now, I think many of us feel a a really strong sense of separation, a really strong sense of you know, and I, I think it's in all over, you know, it's not just one part of the spectrum. It's like, how could people think like this? How could they believe this? How could they do this? And it's deep, deep divisions. And, you know, obviously we, we come with our strong views of 
what is right, what is appropriate, what is humanitarian. But we, um, but when we create that separation, whether we have the right views or the wrong views or whatever views we have, it's still separation. And what the what the Buddha's teachings remind us is that we're not divided into good and bad people. That's really really fundamental. We're not divided into the righteous righteous ones over here and the evil-hearted ones over there. Rather, the difference between us comes down to whether or not we've trained our minds. And I've said this before, but, but each one of us has the capacity to do great harm or great good in the world and in our lives, depending on what qualities that we, that we cultivate. What seeds do we nurture? Does this make sense? That what we, what we cultivate, really, we become. What Cam, Albert Camus said, we, we all carry within us our crimes, our ravages, our places of exile. Our task is not to unleash them on the world, but to transform them in ourselves and others. And that's really what we're talking about. We're seeing the possibility, the very, you know, the real possibility of unleashing our anger on the world or our judgments or our fear on the world. Because when we go into those tight fight-or-flight places of being identified with the emotions and, the, and mind states, then very easily we, get, we create self and other, we... You know, we can easily then, you know, harm another because, you know, they are different, they're threatening, they're, you know, they might harm me. We see throughout history, this has been the, the, the rationale and the justification for harm. They did it to me first, or they acted like this, so I had to do this. Or I had to do it to preempt them because they would have done it to me. You know, all of these ways the, the mind rationalizes creating the separate other. And often when we create, you know, in, in, in the larger political world, you know, we, we can even take away people's humanity. You know, they're animals, they're less than human. You know, that sense of... And so we can further separate ourselves. It makes it easier, I think, for us. You know, it's not easy for any human to harm another human. So if we, you know, in certain situations, you know, treating people as, as cockroaches or worse than, you know, animals. You know, that's the way in which, you know, huge damage and harm and suffering has been caused through history. So the Buddha taught it's not good and evil. It's whether we've trained our minds. The Buddha said nothing can do us more harm than an untrained mind. You think about that. Nothing can do us more harm than an untrained mind. Not even your worst enemy can do you more harm than your mind untrained. Does that resonate for anyone, for you, an untrained mind? That if our mind is not, if we haven't cultivated kindness, awareness, gratitude, generosity, the kind of qualities that connect us with others, then it's very easy if we've, if we've trained our mind, you know, 
by default to be caught up in anger, fear, hatred, greed, then we can do enormous harm. You know, even, quote, people who might have thought themselves as very ethical and moral have done things, um, done really harmful things when, um, you know, under, under pressure and in fear, you know. And so nothing can do us more harm than an untrained mind. Not even our worst enemies can do us more harm. And nothing can do us more good than a trained mind. Not even your father, your mother, your relatives. Nothing, no one can do you more good than a trained mind. The trained mind really takes us to the deepest freedom that's possible in life, the Buddha taught. What really separates us if there's any separation, and it's, it's only a kind of a relative one, is just the seeds that we've sown. You know, what, what did I say separates? What really differentiates? The difference really is just where, what, have we, what have we cultivated? What are the seeds that we've sown? You know, have we sown healthy seeds that lead to well-being and happiness and freedom? Or have we sow, sown seeds of of anger, of greed, of fear, that lead to, lead to harm. So we could reflect, you know, what is it? What are the seeds that we're sowing? By coming here, what's really positive is that we're, we're, we're really sowing a seed, the seeds of intention, intention to be, to be present, to be present for our lives, taking the time in the, in the midst of our lives to, to be to come into retreat. And by, by practicing, we're cultivating, we're sowing the seeds of, of awareness and of loving kindness and compassion by cultivating these qualities. And these qualities are qualities that really ennoble our lives. The Buddha often used the word noble, you know, and, and it didn't mean in terms of royalty, but a kind of spiritual nobility, a spiritual cleanness of heart and mind, a, a purity, a sincerity of heart, that where ultimately, you know, things become so clear that it would be impossible to harm another person or another being. I might read a story if there's time on, on that theme in a minute. Um, so I've talked and we've shared today about the, the, the Brahma Viharas or the divine abodes these are qualities that we we can cultivate to to help open our hearts to to help um, cultivate qualities that um, that lead to freedom and, and and great happiness. So we talked about loving kindness, the four loving kindness, compassion, sympathetic joy, and and equanimity. We talked about them being boundless and immeasurable, and the story of the Buddha. You know, giving the monks uh, the um, the practice of loving kindness and the effect it had in the story on the spirits of the forest, and how a a mind filled with fear can still be penetrated by by loving kindness, but the mind saturated with loving kindness can't be overcome by fear. So it's a real protection to cultivate this quality of loving kindness. It protects us as we as we go into the world, 
as we, as we engage in the world. So the heart practices are really important in these times, in any time, but I see the kind of a particular you know, way in which they're crucial in these days. Because in a way, kind of, I think we're faced with, with, with a kind of crossroads of we could go into fear or we could go towards love. You know, and can we, can we engage and be in, in struggle, you know, in, with differences with others, but without hate, with an open heart, you know, as with the, um, the, 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 the civil rights movement 50 and more years ago, that example of how we can be active and engaged, but without putting anyone out of our hearts, keeping our hearts open. It's, easy, it's so easy in these times, it's so easy perhaps in any time, even if we've meditated for some time, to move into fear and separation to blame those we see as, as doing harmful things. We could be also af- afraid of where things are going to lead. And the mind can easily get caught up in proliferation. You know, so we have to see the difference between being concerned about where things are going. And that there's a wisdom in that, I think. You know, I, I think it's really important to say, okay, what, what, what is the traje- trajectory if things go on in the way they're going? And that's kind of a, a paying a wise attention to where things are going. But we can take any possible future and we can proliferate around it. And that's when the emotion takes control and we get caught up in that trance again. We get caught up in, in fear and the stories and, oh, but this could happen because the mind can create a million stories. And the, and. We can, the, uh, Eckhart Tolle says, um, who wrote The Power of Now, says, uh, we can always, we can always cope with the present moment. We can always cope with the present moment. We, the present moment, however challenging and difficult it is, we can always cope with it. We can always be with it. It may be really, really difficult, but we have potentially, if we train the heart and mind, Potentially, we have the capacity to be with this, even if it's a very, very strong fear, worry, um, strong craving we might have. We can cope with the present moment because we're here, we're in the present moment, we're engaged with it. But he says, we can never cope with the future. We can never cope with the future because the future is always just a mind creation. It's always just something that the mind spins into existence. Now, that's not to say, you know, that we're stupid for thinking that the sun will probably come up tomorrow morning. You know, probably it's a good bet. If there was a bookie here that would give me 10 to 1 on that, <laughs> I'd put a lot of money on that, you know, but I don't want to speak too soon. But, um, but you know, there's certain things, yes, you know, there's certain things that are relatively predictable, but but when we when we we don't know if we'll be here tomorrow that's the other thing that might be less predictable you know anything can happen um so we can't cope with the future but the mind creates all these scenarios and i would say a great 
part of our suffering comes from our unskillful relationship with the future, not engaging wisely with the future. Because we can, we can engage wisely with the future by you know, doing some constructive planning, you know, putting money away for a rainy day, putting money away for a pension. All of those things are wise things to do. We might not be around, but still wise things to do because if we are, we're going to you know, want some resources when, when that comes. And so there's wise, there's wise discernment in looking at the future, but there's also proliferation, and it's the proliferation that creates the suffering. And it's often, very, it's often really strongly fear-based, anxiety, worry-based. So the mind can easily get caught up in that kind of proliferation. And so the cultivation of an open and joyful heart is one of the most powerful supports in these times, and we can train our hearts. And I want to share a few reflections on, particularly on compassion, um, before we finish in a few minutes this evening. The second of the Brahma Viharas, the quality of heart that arises when, when an open heart meets the suffering of others or ourselves. It's the sincere wish for all beings to be free from suffering. Compassion is the willingness to be with suffering without running away. So I've been speaking about how working with our own suffering is a key to engaging in the world. And when just talking about compassion, that's a primary way in which we engage with suffering. So compassion is the willingness to be with suffering without running away. It's natural, can be habitual to pull back from pain, to recoil from pain, our own, our own or others. And if our heart isn't open, if we're in a place of fear or separation, we, we move away. We kind of shut things down, push them away. We can turn away from the homeless person on the street or turn off the news when news about Syria or Sudan comes on. It can be can feel too much to hold, it can feel overwhelming, we can feel powerless, so we turn away. And I want to say in parenthesis, it can be very wise to step away from you know, too much information because the other way our mind goes is we think we're going to solve the problems by just knowing more and more and more, watching more TV, listening to more radio, reading more, consuming, 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 and often getting really tight around it. So it's really valuable to step away. So again, it's a question of discernment. To step away in a discerning way with the intention of coming back and engaging. I think that's really wise and compassionate. That's wise action. But shutting down, just shutting down completely out of fear. Sometimes we might need to do that, but that's not kind of the most, the healthiest response. If we could respond most healthily, we would skillfully I think we'd want to stay open and engaged and knowing where it's right to step in and step out so to be discerning that's the insight that works with with compassion so compassion comes from the recognition that we're not separate that to turn away is to turn away from ourselves 
to shut ourselves down, to cut ourselves off from, from life and from joy. And I've talked about you know, the natural tendency of, of natural empathy we have that really seems to be in our DNA, but that we can, that we can shut it down when we get caught up in suffering. The literal meaning of compassion is suffering with. And in order to suffer with another, we must first be willing to be with and open to our own suffering. So to open to the suffering of another, we really have to open to our own suffering. Thich Nhat Hanh again says, if you don't know how to take care of yourself and take care of the violence in you, then you will not be able to take care of others. You must have love and patience before you can listen to your partner or child. If you are irritated, you cannot listen. You have to know how to breathe mindfully. Embrace your irritation and transform it. This is the practice of mindfulness. Breathe mindfully Embrace your irritation and transform it. Offer only understanding and compassion to your partner and child. That is the true practice of love. And one of the most important practices for these times, as I've said before as well, is is self-compassion. Opening to our own suffering allows us to be with and open to the suffering of another. With compassion, there's, there's not separation between ourselves and others. If we look at pity, there's a me up here and someone else down there. But when love meets suffering, the expression is compassion. When fear meets suffering, the expression is pity. And when we fully open to our own experience, the sense of a separate self falls away and the barrier between myself and my pain and yourself and your pain or another's pain dissolves. And it's like we're falling into the flow of life. We're coming back into our interconnectedness with all of life, with all beings. So the opening with compassion and love to our own experience, to our own suffering, is a gateway to opening to the suffering of another or others. So the more we can cultivate self-compassion, kindness for ourselves, kindness towards our own suffering, the more we can go back into the world and engage with and meet the suffering of, the, of others, those who are hurting from what is happening right now, those who are in pain of different kinds, and also those who are causing pain. When we're caught up in fear, we see that person who's causing pain as the other, you know, separate. But if our heart is open with compassion, we're more open to the suffering that that person is feeling, is experiencing. It doesn't mean we exonerate them or exculpate them or let them off the hook. 
it it means we can do whatever needs to be done to to prevent the harm, but we don't um, we don't turn them into an unreal other. Milarepa, a great Tibetan sage, once said, "Long accustomed to contemplating compassion, I have forgotten all difference between." myself and others. So the path from opening to our own suffering to opening to the suffering of the world is a very direct one. The path to alleviating the suffering of the world leads through the gateway of our own suffering and meeting that suffering with compassion. So really there's a direct relationship that the more we can open to our own suffering, the more we can engage in the world. So we come back and we start here. We meet our own experience with, with kindness, with compassion. You could see the practice, this practice as being a little like alchemy turning base metals into gold or turning manure into flowers and vegetables. But it actually works. We take our suffering and we meet it with kindness and with love and without resistance and something changes. Something changes in the way we meet our experience. Meeting it with compassion, making space for it, something changes. By being willing to be with our suffering, we find a way out of suffering. We turn suffering into compassion. Arjun Chah, who I quoted earlier about the still forest pool, says there there are two kinds of suffering. There's the suffering that leads to more suffering, and there's the suffering that leads to the end of suffering. The suffering that leads to more suffering is when we suffer because we're craving and we think by getting more of the thing we want, we're going to alleviate our suffering. It's like, you know, an addict who thinks the solution is to get the drug, but the drug, in fact, only keeps the cycle, strengthens the cycle of suffering and of craving in that case. Um, So there's the suffering that leads to more suffering where we don't bring awareness to our suffering. We think the thing that we want is going to end our suffering or the getting rid of the thing that we don't want is going to end our suffering. But it actually perpetuates. It strengthens those habits of mind. It strengthens the clinging. It strengthens the suffering. But there's the suffering that leads to the end of suffering and that's the willingness to be with our experience as it is, to meet it wholeheartedly. And then in that way to transform the manure into gold. The, 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 the um, oh, sorry, manure into gold. Manure. <laughs> That's a good one, I think. The manure into gold, the base metals into vegetables. <laughs> so in the original version, uh, turning base metals into gold, manure into vegetables and flowers. There's a wonderful practice, some of you may be familiar with it, a Tibetan tradition practice called Tonglen, Tonglen, where, and, and if we have time before the end of the retreat, I think it would be nice to do at least a short Tonglen practice. But what we do is we, we invite in 
to our hearts the suffering of the world. You know, we make sure that we're grounded enough to be able to do it. You don't want to be too, you know, too activated. But if we feel grounded, invite in the suffering of the world. You know, it may be a particular form of suffering, the suffering of a particular person or a group of people or a community. We invite it in. We breathe it in. Breathe in the suffering. And we take in the suffering and we allow it to be transformed within our own hearts by opening to to our experience, to hold it with kindness and make space for it. And then we consciously breathe out what's needed, breathe out compassion, breathe out peace, breathe out love, breathe out kindness. And so it's a kind of a cycle of doing this. You know, rather than taking in suffering and sending out suffering, we take in suffering and we transform it and send it out as, as kindness, as loving kindness, as compassion, as peace, or whatever the conditions um, call for. So in being willing to open to our own suffering, we build the strength and capacity to be with the suffering of others. As we open to the truth of our experience, our pains, our joys and happiness, without resistance, the separation between ourselves and others and the world dissolves. He is, um, he is Henry Wadsworth Longfellow. If we could read the secret history of our enemies, we should see sorrow and suffering enough to disarm all hostility if we could read the secret history of our enemies, we should see sorrow and suffering enough to disarm all hostility. It's really worth reflecting on. You know, we, we easily judge people, how could you do that? And yet, if we knew what their experience was, um, it would, might disarm all hostility. And, you know, we'd still want to protect and defend and do what need, needed to be done. And just one final quote, and this is from Alexander Solzhenitsyn, who spent many years in the gulag and the camps in, in Russia uh, under the Soviet Union, um, under the Soviet regime. He says, if only it were all so simple, if only there were evil people somewhere, somewhere else insidiously committing evil deeds, and it was simply necessary to separate them from the rest of us and destroy them. But the line dividing good and evil cuts through the heart of every human being, and who is willing to destroy a piece of his own heart? The line dividing good and evil cuts through the heart of every human being, and who is willing to destroy a piece of his own heart? So let's just take a couple of quiet minutes to sit together, finish off this part of our evening.
finishing with this poem from the Austrian poet Reina Maria Rilke. I live my life in widening circles that reach out across the world. I may not complete this last one, but I give myself to it. I circle around God, around the primordial tower. I've been circling for thousands of years, and still I don't know. Am I a falcon, a storm, or a great song? Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.